What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This podcast is part of a six-part series coming to you from Ashley Scheel and Skylar Ruschling. At the time of these recordings in April of 2019, Ashley and Skylar were second-year SRNAs at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. They worked with me to produce these six shows, three from each of them, as part of their doctorates in anesthesia at Marion. Ashley and Skylar wanted to create shows that would be helpful to new anesthesia trainees, and I think they hit it out of the park with these podcasts. The six topics we cover are clinical flow from pre-op through intubation, a rundown on the anesthesia machine, the pharmacokinetics of volatile anesthetics, the pharmacodynamics of volatile anesthetics, common IV induction agents, and a rundown on local anesthetics. I think these shows are a great introduction for new anesthesia learners and will also serve as a pretty solid review for seasoned providers. Ashley Scheel earned her BSN from Purdue University in 2012, and she worked as a critical care registered nurse in the surgical ICU at the Rudabash VA Medical Center in Indianapolis for six years prior to going back to anesthesia school. Skylar Ruschling attended Ball State University for her undergraduate education, where she earned her BSN in 2013. She went on to work in the medical ICU at a level one trauma center in downtown Indianapolis for five years before returning to anesthesia school. She was married in 2018 and subsequently has changed her name to Skylar Williams. Since these shows were recorded, Ashley and Skylar have completed their doctorates at Marion, graduating in May of 2020, and successfully passed boards as CRNAs. As of September 2021, when these shows are being published on Anesthesia Guidebook, Dr. Scheel and Dr. Williams both work as CRNAs at IU Health Arnett Hospital in Lafayette, Indiana. You'll hear from both of them before we jump into the show. Hey everyone, I'm Skylar, and yeah, we're actually part of the inaugural class of um, the first nurse anesthesia program to open in Indiana. Um, So we're on track to earn our DMP degree, and in order to fulfill this degree, we're going to be completing a research project. So ours is titled Podcast as a Learning Adjunct in Nurse Anesthesia Education. Hey everyone, it's Ashley here. We became interested in this topic because we found ourselves listening to a lot of podcasts while driving to and from clinicals, and we thought it would be beneficial to be able to listen to foundational anesthesia content geared specifically towards SRNAs. Um, We're going to be measuring the satisfaction of SRNAs within our own program, but we really do hope that these podcasts help other SRNAs and CRNAs as well. Uh, We really want to thank you, John, for allowing us the opportunity to host our podcasts. Hey, I am so pumped about this. I think you all have done a really good job developing the content, and I can't wait to bring these episodes to people. So let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the shows. So, Ashley, hey, today uh, we're going to talk about IV induction anesthetics specifically. I'm very much looking forward to what you have to share with us today. Yeah, hey guys, it's nice to be back again. In this podcast, we'll be hitting the main concepts of the IV induction anesthetics, including propofol, ketamine, atomidate, barbiturates, dexmedetomidine, and benzodiazepines. And with these medications, you know, we realized uh, with this podcast that you can just look up in a textbook most of what we're going to say, but we're going to really try to um, put some relevant real world experience to these drugs as well as you know, hopefully, especially for the CRNA or the SRNAs, excuse me, we want you to think about these medications and then realize how uh, you're going to use them for certain patients, different patient populations, and different clinical situations. And and it might seem daunting now, but the the more you practice and the more experience you have, you'll you'll be able to grow and develop these the knowledge that you have uh, about them and their uses. So so that's what our hope for you is. And we'll go ahead and get started with propofol here. The brand name for propofol, of course, is Diprovan. It was actually introduced in the United Kingdom in the 1970s, and it's currently the most commonly used IV sedative today. Um, It's made up of a a lipid emulsion, and uh, uh, another piece um, in there is purified egg lecithin, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, Because of that lipid emulsion in the propofol, bacterial growth is much more likely So in order to inhibit that bacterial growth, a preservative really needs to be added to the propofol. In Diprovan, which is that brand name, the preservative is called EDTA. And in the generic version of propofol, the preservative is sodium metabisulfate. So even with the preservatives, the risk of contamination is still very high. So all open vials of propofol really need to be discarded within six hours. 
The class of propofol is an alkylphenol. Its mechanism of action is a direct GABA-A agonist. And another way of saying that is a GABA-mimetic. So um, as, as you'll hear, many of these medications that we continue to talk about uh, during the podcast are GABA-A agonists. So let's review really quick um, in depth what that means, what a GABA-A agonist means, so that we can reference back to that later and don't have to really uh, draw this out every single time we talk about it. So gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA, is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, and GABA-A is the glycoprotein receptor complex that GABA binds to in order to activate it. So we have GABA is the thing that binds, and GABA-A is the receptor it binds to. So uh, in this action, it causes neuronal hyperpolarization of the postsynaptic cell membrane. This action inhibits neuronal cell excitation, which is just is another way of saying it causes sedation. So in this case, propofol directly stimulates those GABA-A receptors and potentiates the action of endogenous GABA. So you might be asking now, well, if several of these medications act on the GABA-A receptor, why do they each behave a little differently? The GABA-A receptor actually has separate binding sites that each drug is sort of keyed to. So propofol binds to one site of GABA-A, where atomidate binds to its own unique site on GABA-A. And the hypnotic effects of propofol are attributed to its binding of the beta subunits on the GABA-A receptor. So the induction dose of propofol is 1 to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, and it's dosed on lean body weight. It's also adjusted for age and, and whether or not you've pre-medicated the patient. For example, elderly patients older than 60 need less than younger adults um, those older patients need about maybe only 1 to 1.75 milligrams per kilogram. And even older patients, greater than 80 years old, need even less. Uh, where on the flip side, children need more due to their increased volume of distribution. They need about 2.5 to 3.5 milligrams per kilogram. If you're going to run an infusion of propofol, um, about 50 to 150 mics per kilogram per minute is dosed on total body weight in that situation. If you're going to use it for sedation, uh, 25 to 75 micrograms per kilogram per minute would be, would be the target dose there. The onset of propofol is less than 30 seconds, and it lasts about 5 to 15 minutes. And that awakening, that, um, uh, that awakening after a propofol dose is, is attributed, if you remember from your farm class, to rapid redistribution. It's not that it's being cleared that quickly. It's just that it's going to those different tissues in the body and uh, that's, why, that's why patients wake up from it. So since we're talking about clearance then, the P450 enzymes in the liver as well as extrahepatic metabolism is what clears propofol uh, from the body. And uh, in fact, people with liver disease can clear it at a normal rate because propofol is, is so efficient in that way. Some cerebral dynamics things to consider uh, are that it decreases the cerebral blood flow, the cerebral oxygen consumption. It decreases intracranial pressure about 30 to 50%, decreases cerebral perfusion pressure, and it decreases intraocular pressure about 30 to 40%. There are no analgesic properties in propofol, but people do often feel a sense of euphoria uh, with, with its administration. It also has some anti-seizure properties and reduces the duration uh, that a seizure lasts. And then um, some hemodynamic effects of propofol, uh, it does increase venous dilation. Because of that, uh, you can get a decrease in blood pressure, a decrease in SVR, contractility is decreased, as well as cardiac output, which is significantly re uh, decreased in the elderly, a good reason to tie back to why we give less of the propofol on induction. Preload is reduced, and heart rate is also reduced because um, propofol inhibits uh, the baroreceptor reflex in this situation. Some respiratory effects of propofol, um, it causes respiratory depression and apnea. It also shifts the CO2 response curve down and to the right, which makes the patient less sensitive to CO2, therefore decreasing their drive to breathe. Propofol also has some minor bronchodilatory properties. 
And of note, we talked about the difference between the uh, Dipper Van, the brand name, and that there's also a generic. Dipper Van contains that preservative EDTA, and that preservative does not cause bronchial irritation. Whereas it would be, it would behoove you if you if you know you're using the generic version of propofol with the preservative sodium metabisulfate, that is known to cause bronchospasm, especially in asthmatics. So you really want to take that into consideration if, if that's the type of propofol you're using at your facility. Some more things about propofol, the GI effects that it has, um, it, it is actually a mild anti-emetic. So uh, there's recommendations for 10 to 20 milligrams IV uh, in addition to a background infusion during your case of about 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. I've read some studies that that can be uh, even more advantageous than a dose of 4 milligrams of Zofran even. So seems to be pretty helpful there. Yeah, that's Um, a great thing. We we use that commonly in folks that have a high risk of post-op nausea vomiting. We'll get a propofol infusion going in the background too an inhalational anesthetic, uh, or of course, sometimes just switch them over to a, a full uh, Tiva anesthetic with propofol as the primary sedative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there are some allergy concerns with propofol. You, I'm sure you've all heard that egg allergies, soy, peanut, there's actually nothing that links soy and peanut to uh, propofol at all. Um, but there is that ingredient we sort of touched on, that lecithin. Um, it comes from the egg yolk. And in fact, most people with allergies to eggs, they're allergic to the egg whites. So in, in, uh, it's really, it's most likely safe to use in all patients. Uh, definitely probably would ask them if they've had an anaphylactic reaction before. That might be the only situation where uh, I would probably not use propofol in someone who stated they had an egg allergy. But otherwise, it, it's safe to use in, in everyone. Yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, anything else that you want to talk about on propofol? Yeah, just a, cu- a couple other uh, little little tidbits that are nice to know about propofol. It is, uh, it's known to cause uh, pretty severe pain on injection, but that's definitely something we, we try not to point out as providers. We don't want to re- prep someone to, to experience something negative. So maybe just let someone know um, before you're giving it that you're going to give a medication and uh, that the feeling that they're going to have is normal and that it's going to, then it's, you know, maybe not even say it's going to go away, just that it's normal that they're receiving the medication, assure them that we're going to take good care of them, things like that. Um, But it does, it does kind of help. It can help to give some lidocaine first slowly to help anesthetize that vein. Pushing the propofol slowly also helps to decrease that injection pain as well. And then, you know, there's some surgeries that you're going to do on a specific extremity or there's a reason, you know, maybe if a patient had a breast surgery before that you have to have the IV and the blood pressure cuff on the same arm. Make sure that the blood pressure cuff is not going up constantly when you're trying to in- infuse your um, propofol because that, man, that really hurts if you have that blood pressure cuff up and you you infuse that that uh, propofol into that arm. It just holds it there and really causes a ton of pain. So, so if you can, be vigilant. Stop the cuff before you start your propofol infusion and prevent some worse pain for your patient. All right, so next we're going to move on and we're going to talk about ketamine. Ketalar is its brand name. Ketamine was developed actually in the 1960s and it was released in 1970 in order to induce what's called a dissociative anesthesia that's more desirable than PCP, which was developed in the 1920s. And those are the same drug class. Dissociative anesthesia is a term that is only used to refer to the type of sedation that happens from ketamine specifically. So we don't use that term for any other drug, only ketamine. Ketamine is made up of just an aqueous mixture. Um, It's got actually two isomers, R-ketamine and S-ketamine. And a little side note and a nod to meet my VA roots, the FDA actually just recently approved the use of intranasal S-ketamine on March 5th of this year, and the VA has approved it also and is making it available for veterans with treatment-resistant depression, which is really cool. Ketamine is part of the PCP, it's a fencyclidine derivative actually, um, 
And its mechanism of action uh, works on the NMDA receptor. It's an antagonist, so it inhibits glutamine input to the GABA system. Some other mechanism of action properties it has is that it interacts with opioid, monoaminergic, cholinergic, nicotinic, and muscarinic receptors as well. So a typical induction or RSI IV dose of ketamine would be one and a half milligrams per kilogram, which is the same in children, and its onset is less than a minute. IM, that dose is four to six milligrams per kilogram, and its onset is less than five minutes. PO, that dose is six to eight milligrams per kilogram, and its onset is 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, We talked about this a little now. Intranasal, its dose is... 0.15 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, and its onset is 11 minutes. And again, this is for the induction of anesthesia. We talked about intranasal in in more of an antidepressant uh, situation. But the maintenance of general anesthesia can happen with uh, an infusion of 30 to 90 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Um, If you're going to be in a situation where you want to do some procedural sedation and get a little analgesia in there, Um, An appropriate dose would be 0.2 to 0.8 milligrams per kilogram, and you can give that IV over two to three minutes or so. And then say maybe you have a patient that you've already induced anesthesia to, and you just want to provide some opioid-sparing analgesia to them. A really great dose for that would be 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram up to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram as the bolus. And you can consider giving that about every 30 to 45 minutes based on its duration of action there. Reorientation uh, after an anesthetic dose of ketamine takes about 15 to 30 minutes. And it is cleared by actually the intestines, lungs, kidneys, as well as the P450 enzymes in the liver. And ketamine is a drug that um, patients can develop tolerance to with long-term use. It causes, uh, it induces the enzymes that break it down. And liver insufficiency actually doesn't seem to alter the metabolism of the drug. Ketamine does have an active metabolite. It's called norketamine, and it's one-fifth to a third the potency of ketamine. But it actually helps in the overall analgesic potency It's then renally excreted. If patients do have renal disease, it's not necessarily a problem unless that kidney disease is is really severe. So for most patients, this is a perfectly safe drug. Now we'll talk about some cerebral dynamics uh, related to ketamine use. It does increase cerebral blood flow, uh, cerebral oxygen consumption, and it transiently increases uh, intracranial pressure, intraocular pressure, Uh, So generally, ketamine is is a safe drug to use in all types of surgeries. I know a lot of us have learned, you know, you shouldn't really use it in open globe ocular injuries and um, neurosurgery in in situations with elevated ICP or where you'd want to avoid elevated ICP. But because those increases are transient, it it really is a, a safe drug to use if the situation calls for it. Yeah, and I, and I would hop in there. The, the interesting part of that is that if you think about the pathophysiology of acute neurotrauma, in order to maintain adequate cerebral perfusion, you need to have an adequate MAP. And so ketamine right. is, is helpful in that as an anesthetic, it helps support the mean arterial pressure, which then subsequently helps support perfusion to the brain. So Classically, the understanding has been to avoid ketamine and neurotrauma uh, in patients with a glaucoma or open globe injuries, but the effects of ketamine are transient enough in terms of their influence on the pressure in those systems, whether the eye or the brain, that it has not been shown to lead to increased morbidity or mortality, increased ICU stay, increased negative outcomes with neurotrauma or eye injuries. So... So the best literature that is out there on ketamine does show that it is safe to use in those cases. And we can put links in the show notes to that information for those who want to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And then continuing with the cerebral cerebral dynamics, um, EEG activity is also not suppressed. So uh, that that's beneficial too in case evoked potential monitoring or somatosensory evoked potentials are needed during surgery. We're going to talk about that dissociative anesthesia that ketamine produces again. 
in that situation, the eyes might actually be open and uh, might have nystagmus happening where they, they move quickly back and forth, um, and that is normal. Muscle hypertonia can also occur with ketamine administration. Emergence delirium can occur, too, where postoperatively they'll have hallucinations and nightmares. Uh, Versed can actually help prevent this. In fact, most patients, you should probably give Versed if you're going to choose to give ketamine in order to decrease the incidence of that emergence delirium. The risk for it increases um, in people older than uh, 15, also in females, patients with psychological disorders already, and in doses greater than 2 milligrams per kilogram. Caution should be taken in patients with increased intracranial pressure, intraocular pressure, that psychiatric disease, and in kids, if they're going to have a strabismus repair or other eye surgery, because we, you know, we talked about that nystagmus, their eye wouldn't be able to remain still for the surgeon to be to be able to operate on. So, so just some cerebral dynamics there. We'll move on to hemodynamics now. Ketamine does cause an increase in heart rate and also in sympathetic nervous system tone. And most people, you know, uh, tend to go for ketamine if their patient is hemodynamically unstable. But it, you really, we really have to weigh that instability with how much ketamine we're gonna we're gonna give. So you really want to uh, choose to reduce your dose of ketamine uh, in a in a hemodynamically unstable patient because uh, if patients don't have that catecholamine response that they need to have in in order to maintain their hemodynamics anyway. Ketamine isn't really going to help them at all. Um, did you want to speak some more on that, John? Yeah, I, know I think so. This is this is kind of an in- interesting point because I, I see in clinical practice a lot of folks think, well, you know, if I have a trauma patient who's got an unstable blood pressure, or if I've got a cardiac patient with a low EF uh, that I'm concerned about their blood pressure, I'll just reach for ketamine, and then that should give me a level of comfort in terms of maintaining their blood pressure. Which is true. I mean, ketamine is a sympathomic medic. It will help support someone's heart rate and their blood pressure. But the caveat is that if you have someone, say, in an acute hypovolemic shock or acute cardiogenic shock, and they are on the verge of cardiovascular collapse, ketamine is still a great choice for them, but you do need to be cautious with the dosing. And typically, reducing the dosing will help prevent a hypotensive response to ketamine. It is a direct myocardial depressant, even though it has some sympathomimetic effects to it. So caution is advised, which would be the same for any of these anesthetic inductions. Trauma anesthesia specialist, the guy I'm thinking of is Richard Dutton, who spent a long time as a trauma anesthesiologist down at Maryland Shock Trauma Center. His go-to induction agent in multi-system trauma was actually propofol, but he just profoundly reduces the dose of that down to about 10% of what your typical induction dose would be. But the point was that it doesn't really matter if it's ketamine, atomidate, or propofol. The point of it is how you use the medication and being cautious with it and noting that those people that are on the verge of a cardiovascular collapse, you just need to use less of an induction dose that you would typically use in someone with an intact sympathetic neurovascular system. Yeah, that's awesome, John. I really appreciate you adding that in because it's it sort of seems like, you know, uh, we as SRNAs, we sort of sometimes learn about these induction drugs in almost like this hierarchy where, you know, you got a stable patient, propofol, not as stable, atomidate, really not stable, ketamine. But you're totally right. It all really depends heavily on how much you give and the other factors that are playing into the situation. And yeah, so I, I love that, that you added that, yeah, I think it's, that it's not just that level that we sort of learn about. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you learn, you know, in anesthesia school, you learn about the science of anesthesia, and that's based on great information. And I think that's a pretty typical hierarchy that you would refer back to. But as we all know, as we progress in our anesthesia practice, that you really begin to develop the art of anesthesia and gaining that clinical context into how we're doing things. And I would say that we're probably all on that path of continuously learning. So that's why I think this podcast can be super helpful, not only for SRNAs, but for practicing clinicians. So I'm, I'm stoked that we're talking about this kind of stuff today. Yeah. Awesome. Me too. So back to some hemodynamics about ketamine. Um, it does also cause an increase in cardiac output, an increase in SVR, and also pulmonary vascular resistance. 
Some respiratory effects of ketamine uh, include bronchodilate, bronchodilation. In fact, it's, it's a great medication to use in a patient with status asthmaticus. Um, it does increase oral and pulmonary secretions, which can, can be a problem. It can lead to laryngospasm potentially. So it, it can be a good idea to give glycopyrrolate uh, or atropine, which can act as an anti-salagogue in order to dry up some of those secretions. Just remember that those medications will also attribute to your increase in, in heart rate as well. Ketamine also leaves your respiratory drive intact, as well as the airway, muscles, and tone and reflexes. So those are all positives. Unfortunately, though, ketamine is a moderate to high emetogenic, so a little bit negative uh, in that aspect. Ketamine is, however, unlike some of the other induction anesthetics, uh, a pretty good analgesic. It provides analgesic and is opioid sparing. It can relieve somatic pain, which is skin, tissue, and muscle pain, and it relieves that pain better than visceral pain, actually. It blocks that central sensitization and wind-up in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, and it prevents opioid-induced hyperalgesia as well. Um, it's good for burn patients and chronic pain patients as well. Yeah, I think ketamine is a, is a really fascinating drug and the ones that we're talking about today because it can be used as an induction agent. It is a dissociative anesthetic that even as a sole agent can create states of anesthesia that are compatible with surgical stimulation. So as you mentioned earlier, that 1.5 milligrams per kilogram dose will put people into a dissociative state of anesthesia and even though, which can be scary, even though their eyes are still open, they might have nystagmus, they are at a depth of anesthesia that is compatible with surgery. So in that acute trauma patient, performing an induction with ketamine can be a reasonable path. But ketamine is also fascinating in that in the drugs that we're talking about today, it's also the one that has this very powerful analgesic effect and can be a very powerful drug in terms of a multimodal opioid sparing or opioid free anesthetic plan. So while we're not talking about that in particular today, that is a very fascinating element of ketamine that I'm glad that you chose to highlight. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll hit on Atomidate now. Its um, brand name is Amidate and it was first derived and synthesized in 1965 and it was introduced uh, first into European practice in 1972. Um, it's made up of either a propylene glycol formulation or a lipid emulsion. And in the United States here, we use the propylene glycol formulation. Although, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately for us, fortunately for the people who do use it, the lipid emulsion does provide less venous irritation and pain than our propylene glycol formulation. Atomidate is of the imidazole class. Its mechanism of action is a GABA-A agonist. The induction dose of atomidate is 0.2 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram IV. In children, the dose is 0.3 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram IV. Um, its onset is 30 to 60 seconds, and it lasts 5 to 15 minutes. And uh, similarly to propofol, uh, the reason people uh, reawaken after a dose of atomidate is because of that rapid redistribution. That clearance happens in the liver with the P450 enzymes as well as plasma esterases. And one great piece about Atomidate, its clearance is not altered by uh, hypovolemia, which is good considering it can be used in situations like uh, trauma and shock. And, and if it was uh, being altered by, say, a state of bleeding, that wouldn't be great if it went away quickly because of that volume loss. Yeah, exactly. Okay, now some cerebral dynamics around Atomidate. It decreases cerebral blood flow as well as cerebral oxygen consumption and intracranial pressure. There is no change to cerebral perfusion pressure, and it also unfortunately has no analgesic properties. Because there is no reduction in sympathetic nervous stimulation, it's good to give it with um, an opioid or esmol in order to prevent that tachycardia related to airway stimulation. And this is sort of one of those pieces where you might say, like, duh, Ashley, like, of course, we're going to give it with an opioid or, an, or esmol. Um, but, you know, you might not. You might have a patient that's unstable and you're not able to do that where you might actually want the 
sympathetic nervous stimulation to help you out in a way of supporting blood pressure and heart rate and things like that. So, so that's sort of a, a different way to think about the way you would use uh, different medications along with the automate during induction. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so some hemodynamics in addition to the cerebral ones, there is actually a minimal change in heart rate. There's also a minimal change in cardiac output and a minimal change in stroke volume as well. There is a small decrease in SVR, which accounts for just a small decrease in blood pressure as well. And as we touched on in several of the points before, that that usually automate is sort of used in more of an unstable patient situation or a trauma and, and is dose dependent on how unstable your patient may or may not be. So some respiratory effects to consider is that, of course, automate causes respiratory depression and brief apnea. Um, negative potential side effects of automate, there, there are quite a few with this drug. And, and because of that, there are providers who do feel strongly that they do or do not really like to use this drug. I don't know if you've seen that, John. There's some preceptors I have that absolutely, no matter what, you're not going to use automate, and there's people that love it. Yeah, I think so. And, and, I, and I think it has to do with some of these negative side effects that you're planning on telling us about. So let's walk through them and, and maybe we'll add some clarity or at least uh, some balance on point with some of these. Yeah, for sure. So some of those are uh, myoclonus. That's that involuntary muscle contraction and not a seizure. And that can happen in up to 70% of the patients that receive automate. It also decreases the seizure threshold, which makes having a seizure more likely. Uh, and that's for patients with a history of seizures. It does not increase the risk for seizures in patients with no history of them already. Atomidate is known to cause adrenal cortical suppression. And that's because of the 11-beta-hydroxylase, which is located in the adrenal medulla. Atomidate actually inhibits that, and it suppresses that adrenal cortical function. And it's the reason that it's not used as an infusion. Uh, many believe that automidate should be avoided in septic patients and those with adrenal failure, if possible. And there's actually a strong debate over the true effects of adrenal cortical suppression caused by the automidate and whether or not mortality is increased. There's actually no conclusive research that supports or dismisses this suggestion. Yeah, and I think this is probably one of the main points as to why people avoid automidate. You know, if you approach automidate from a conservative perspective and you're concerned about adrenal suppression with automidate, right? So a lot of people reach for automidate in states of hemodynamic compromise. And oftentimes that may be a patient who is either in a state of needing critical care medicine or heading in that direction. So you're concerned about how is their body going to respond to the insult of surgery or trauma or sepsis or whatever it may be in the next 24 to 72 hours. So you may think about automidate in those cases that it might be a great induction agent, but then on the backside, people are concerned about adrenal cortical suppression. And I think you hit it on the head. Ashley, there's no good evidence um, to support or refute uh, the information around that. So this is this is debated. I know many anesthesia providers will avoid automidate in cases where they're concerned about the adrenal uh, suppression. However, I also know critical care physicians that say there's not a problem with it and that they routinely use automidate for inductions in the ICU with critically ill patients because of its um, favorable hemodynamic parameters on induction. So this is an area of debate, and I would say look into the research deeper than what this podcast can offer to really shape your practice around that. Yeah, absolutely. Great points. So unfortunately, continuing with the negative side effects of automidate, it is a known metagenic as well. It causes that nausea and vomiting in the postoperative setting. Another situation is uh, patients that have porphyria. Uh, automidate should not be used for patients with a history of acute intermittent porphyria. It causes something called ALA synthase induction, which is a dangerous accumulation of heme precursors in these patients. And we won't get into too many deep details, but for that reason, barbiturates, hydralazine, and glucocorticoids should also be avoided in patients with porphyria. Great. So any, anything else that you'd like to sound off on automidate? No, I think that pretty much hit it all. So we can uh, go ahead and move on to the barbiturates now. And some uh, examples of those are thiopental, methohexatol, pentobarbital, and phenobarbital. Okay, great. 
And so, uh, interestingly, thiopental was first introduced in 1934, and it was actually highly criticized during Pearl Harbor. And some suggested that it contributed to more fatal casualties of the servicemen than the enemy's bombs. Wow. Yeah, it obviously went on to be used extensively until the creation of propofol, and since 2011, it has stopped being marketed in the United States. Um, And while many of these drugs are no longer used for the induction of traditional anesthesia, they're still found on the board exam, so we really wanted to cover them here. And in this situation, we'll discuss methohexetol because it does have a continued important role in uh, electroconvulsive therapy. Excuse me. Its mechanism of action is also a GABA-A agonist, and it, inha- it inhibits the synaptic transmission of excitatory neurotransmitters, for example, glutamate and acetylcholine. Its induction dose is 1.5 milligrams per kilogram, and a common ECT dose is around 80 milligrams. For children, that dose is 5 to 6 milligrams per kilogram, so quite a bit higher. The onset of methohexetol is 30 seconds, and its duration of action is 5 to 10 minutes. Um, and that is actually the reason that it is preferred more, that and its clearance, over thiopental, is that there is that rapid redistribution again. I think we have a theme here. Those P450 enzymes in the liver also contribute to the clearance of, of methohexetol. Some cerebral dynamics of methaxetol, it does decrease the seizure threshold, which of course means that it makes it easier for the patient to have a seizure, which is the primary use of methaxetol, as we've said. It does, however, decrease the duration of the ECT seizure by 35 to 45%. Um, so additionally, uh, methahexetol decreases cerebral blood flow, it decreases cerebral oxygen consumption, intracranial pressure, and EEG activity. There is no analgesic properties of methahexetol, and it can contribute to that myoclonus that we've spoken about. Methahexetol also offers some neuroprotection for focal ischemia, such as if you were to give it during a, a CEA. Um, it doesn't offer global ischemia protection like like what would occur during cardiac arrest. So some hemodynamics uh, about some hemodynamic effects about methahexetol, I should say. Um, it does increase venous dilation and causes uh, some hypotension. It causes an increase in heart rate because of reflex tachycardia um, and this occurs because of a preserved baroreceptor reflex. And this combination is harmful in patients with CAD uh, and hypovolemia due to to increased myocardial oxygen consumption, actually. Some decreases in hemodynamics are sympathetic nervous system outflow, decrease in preload, in contractility, in cardiac output, and, and as I've said, in MAP. And that hypotension that occurs is less than, than that that's caused by propofol. Some respiratory effects of methahexetol is that it causes respiratory depression and apnea. It again shifts that CO2 response curve to the right, which makes patients less sensitive to CO2 and decreases their drive to breathe. Um, It causes bronchoconstriction due to histamine release, so do take care in patients that have uh, significant histories of asthma. Some other um, tidbits on methahexetol is that there is pain on injection. Um, It is an emetogenic and again, um, avoid all barbiturates in patients with that acute intermittent porphyria that we already talked about. So now let's uh, move right along and start talking about dexmedetomidine here, probably more commonly known for its easier to pronounce name, Presidex. Dexmedetomidine was approved in the United States by the FDA in 1999, so not too long ago. And at first, it was only approved for acutely intubated and ventilated patients, uh, such as in a critical care setting. Um, And it was actually approved for perioperative and procedural sedation just back in 2008, so not too long. Um, It's made up of a water-soluble preservative-free solution, and it's part of the imidazole class, which is the same as atomidate. Its mechanism of action is 
different from some here. We've got a presynaptic alpha-2 agonist, and it's actually extremely selective, even more so than, say, clonidine, which uh, is, if you all remember, another alpha-2 agonist. So it decreases that cyclic AMP and um, inhibits the locus ceruleus, which is located in the pons, and that mediates uh, vigilance and arousal. Uh, that causes sedation and is a sympatholytic uh, reaction. Um, some spinal effects of dexmedetomidine, it decreases the release of excitatory neurotransmitters, reducing the ascending spinal pathways involved in nociception, which contributes to that analgesia piece. The way you give dexmedetomidine is by a loading dose followed up by an infusion. So that loading dose is one mic per kilogram IV over 10 minutes, and that's the same for pediatrics. And that follow-up infusion is 0.4 to 0.7 micrograms per kilogram per hour. And it actually can go as high as 2 micrograms per kilogram per hour. It's also available intranasally, and that can be given up to 2 micrograms per kilogram as well. Its onset is 10 to 20 minutes after the loading dose, and it lasts 10 to 30 minutes after the infusion has ended. And again, it's cleared by the P450 enzymes in the liver. And the, the clearance of it is definitely impaired in a patient with liver disease. After it metabolizes through the liver, it's excreted by the kidneys. And it's not a problem in kidney disease unless that disease is severe. Some cerebral dynamics about Presidex, it decreases cerebral blood flow. There is no change in cerebral oxygen consumption or intracranial pressure. It does not provide amnesia. The patients that are sedated by it should be easily arousable. It's helpful in situations where you may need the patient to be awake for any given situation, like, like an awake crany, for instance, or, or maybe even one of the, like a CEA, where you want to make sure the perfusion to the brain is still um, adequate. It can help treat delirium. It reduces the MAC of inhalational anesthetics. It also, um, I thought this was really interesting, it produces the most natural version of sleep. Presidex does, in fact, help patients get a very close to natural form of restful sleep, which is probably why it helps to treat that delirium, because patients uh, usually are sleep-deprived in that type of situation. Um, the sedation from Presidex is achieved due to, the, to decreased sympathetic nervous system tone and their level of arousal. Some hemodynamics associated with Presidex, probably the most important one is that it, does, it can cause some pretty profound bradycardia. There's up to as much as a 30% or more decrease in heart rate with that bolus dose of Presidex that we talked about. Blood pressure is also decreased, and in turn, there would, of course, be a reduction in cardiac output with that. Really, probably one of the best qualities in, uh, of Presidex there is is that there's no respiratory depression. There's no decrease in oxygenation, no change in the CO2 response curve or blood pH. And it's really ideal for procedural sedation um, or managing a difficult airway. In fact, it's great for um, awake fiber optic intubation. It does increase the shivering threshold, which, which would mean that it makes it more unlikely a patient will shiver. Um, it does not affect sensory or motor evoked potentials in neuromonitoring. And it does produce um, some analgesia via that alpha-2 stimulation in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Um, and it decreases substance P and the glutamate response. It should be avoided in patients with clinically significant heart blocks or bradyarrhythmias uh, as well as extreme hypovolemia, and in those with valvular stenosis, mainly because of that, those two things, the reduction in blood pressure and more specifically in heart rate. So those would those are some of the only contraindications of, of Presidex. But overall, it's really a, a great newer drug that we've been able to add to our arsenal of medications for induction. So next we'll go through some benzodiazepines, and some really common examples are midazolam, diazepam, and lorazepam. So since midazolam is the most commonly used in the perioperative setting, we'll focus our discussion of benzos on it. So of course the other, the uh, brand name for midazolam is Versed, 
it's made up of a solution that does have that EDTA preservative in it and also benzyl alcohol. Kind of a neat fact is that it's water-soluble in the vial, but then it becomes lipid-soluble once you inject it. Versed is a GABA-A agonist, and it increases the frequency of channel opening, causing that neuronal hyperpolarization, just like the other GABA agonists. Where most of them increase the time the channel is open, Versed increases the frequency in which they're open. So that's a little bit different. Uh, a traditional induction dose of Versed is 0.1 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. And I want to emphasize there, I'm not talking about a dose for anxiolysis. I'm talking about actually inducing a patient with Versed. That's the 0.1 to 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. A traditional dose for anxiolysis would just be straight up 0.5 to 2 milligrams. Versed also can help prevent PONV. And that dose would just be one milligram uh, anytime after induction can help help with that. A sedation dose would be 0 0.1 to 0, I'm sorry, excuse me, 0 0.01 to 0 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Um, and PO in children, uh, that's often given, and it is 0 0.5 to 1 milligrams per kilogram. The onset of Versed is 30 to 60 seconds, and it lasts about 20 to 60 minutes. And again, it's cleared by the P450 enzymes in, in the liver and in the intestines as well. Versed does have an active metabolite. It's, it's called 1-hydroxymedazolam, um, and it is half the potency of, of Versed. It is rapidly inactivated by the kidneys, so it's, it's really not usually an issue, again, unless that renal failure is very significant, in which case it would cause a profound sedation. So I'm going to go through some of the um, effects just like I have with the other drugs. And I want you to note that all the, f the effects that we're about to discuss, again, refer back to that induction dose of Versed and not, not necessarily an anxiolytic dose. Those effects uh, are very minimal. So some cerebral dynamics. Cerebral blood flow is decreased as well as cerebral oxygen consumption, but cerebral perfusion pressure is maintained. Versed does not provide any analgesia. But very unique to this benzo class, it does provide anterograde amnesia, not retrograde. There is no medication that exists that can erase past formed memories. So that amnesia, that anterograde amnesia lasts about one to two hours after an anesthetic dose is given. A Versed is used as a, as a great anticonvulsant as well as an antispasmodic. And, uh, and, of course, we've talked about already an anxiolytic. And, and traditionally, I think, you know, it was really given to almost every single patient preoperatively. Now, uh, really more consideration is given toward factors like age with regards to prolonged sedation, slow emergence, and the risk for post-op cognitive dysfunction. Um, you know, the levels of anxiety the patient might have preoperatively as well as their ASA status, how sick they are, you know, and the type and length of the procedure. Um, you know, for example, it's not, it's not given quite as much in an outpatient setting because you really you want to get those patients awake and reoriented and, and be able to have a quicker turnaround times. Um, so it's beneficial to take uh, these things into consideration instead of just giving it to, to nearly everyone like we kind of used to do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, when I started in anesthesia school, it was like, you know, two aversed was the plan with just about everybody. But I think as you progress, it's important to realize that, hey, this does actually have implications, not just for pre-op into the OR, but for emergence and what's going to happen with that patient throughout the rest of the day. So it can lead to uh, emergence delirium, especially with older folks where we're really concerned about post-operative cognitive dysfunction. And then as you highlighted, I think that's excellent to talk about the uh outpatient setting and, and the throughput of those patients, they're looking to get home and we don't want to delay that time. So oftentimes your anxiolysis is just left up to your classy personality and your ability to calm people down with, you know, your incredible skills as an anesthetist and communicator and we'll skip the versed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I definitely kind of err on that route. I, I definitely in my practice don't think I give as much versed as, uh, as, as I've heard in the past, or maybe as some other providers do. So um, some hemodynamic effects of those um, 
induction doses of Versed include a small amount of decreased SVR and blood pressure. All right, and then some respiratory effects of Versed. Um, it does cause respiratory depression uh, in those in those induction doses. It also causes a reduction in muscle tone and uh, in the upper airways specifically. And then even so, in anxiolytic doses, opioids potentiate that respiratory depression. So if you were going to do more of like a maybe a conscious sedation type case uh, and, and you're going to give someone two milligrams of Versed and then thinking you're going to hit them with what seems like a normal dose of some fentanyl, you really might cause more respiratory depression than, than you were hoping for. So better to uh, err on the side of caution with opioids in addition to Versed. And this is especially true, too, in older patients and those with COPD. They're definitely more sensitive to the respiratory effects caused by Versed. Well, Ashley, I think that's been a great rundown. Anything else? Uh, I mean, we've covered quite the gamut of anesthetics, I think, at a, at a pretty good level for folks who are just starting out in anesthesia or for those practicing clinicians who want to go back and, you know, take a deep dive and refresh on some of this information. So, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners about IV induction anesthetics? Yeah, thanks. I yeah, I just wanted to kind of uh, reiterate there, like what we said at the beginning, that hopefully this provided sRNAs and cRNAs alike with that information on these induction agents and gives them some room to grow and things to think about in the ways that we use these medications and uh, the different situations and patient populations that we use them in and and can be a little bit of a, a refreshing uh, way to look at these drugs as opposed to, to reading in a textbook about them. So, yeah, I just want to thank you again, John, for hosting me here, and I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Ashley. I'm super pumped about this podcast, and I think it's going to be really helpful for anesthesia learners out there, no matter their stage. So thank you again. Hey, y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.